Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Hitting the street in the bear market days of the late 70s, Michael Arenstein became quickly engaged in studying the Fed, interest rates, and the macroeconomy. His perspective, enabled by managing capital through high and low inflation and volatility regimes, reminds us of the old adage, there are no bad securities, only bad prices. A value-oriented investor with a taste for being contrarian, Michael's research process blends an appreciation for market cycles, a respect for the power of central banks, and a willingness to listen to what's on people's minds. Our conversation on the 1987 crash includes his effective use of put options to ensure the portfolio and the impact of fast-rising U.S. rates on the trade-off between being in or out of risk assets. We also cover the formation of Market Field Asset Management in 2007, where Michael is CIO, and how clearly he saw the excess of housing during that period. In present day, Michael is concerned that the big wealth creation of the new economy is at risk, vulnerable to a slowdown in the money needed to keep the machine running. Please enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my discussion with Michael Arenstein. Michael, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it is great to have you in the office and a chance to walk through some of your current thoughts on markets and really get uh, some of your really critical perspective on sort of the history of risk. Uh, Before we get started, why don't you just walk us through some of your career path, how you got interested in finance, some of your earlier part of your career, and then how you got to the CIO position at Marketfield. Fine. I'm, I'm going to give you the condensed version since it goes back a long way. I started out with Merrill Lynch back at the end of uh, 1978. And that was at a time when Wall Street basically attracted nobody who had any other alternatives. You know, it was pretty much dead and buried. You were in, a, in the midst of a cycle where rates were going from six to 20 and a half on the short end. The street was pretty well devastated. Uh, New York City was bankrupt, so there wasn't a lot of glamour in it and not a lot of competition at that point. So I joined, and very soon after I joined, Bob Farrell, who was a chief market strategist there, offered me a position with him. So I spent four years with Bob, and then when Stan Salvickson joined Merrill Lynch as a strategist, I went over and worked for him for three and a half years. And then we left and formed a money management firm with a couple of other people from Merrill. And I went on there from there to form three separate firms and Marketfield being the most recent in 2006 and probably the last. Great. So so let's um, go back to the early 80s, the bad old days of, as you mentioned, short rates peaking out at unimaginable levels, even... The tenure, I want to say, probably peaked out at uh, 15, 16%. Yeah, it was over. It got to over 16. You had Paul Volcker, a Fed chairman that uh, many uh, credit with a sense of resoluteness that maybe uh, our current leadership lacks. Uh, what, what was it like in, in that time period? What was the prevailing wisdom on things like inflation? I mean, we got to some pretty significant levels and, and now juxtaposed versus today, you can you can barely get to 2% target. What was that that, that starting point like for you? Yeah, it, was, it was very interesting that Volcker came in. We were in a kind of the accelerating phase of inflation. 
And he basically said, I'm going to do whatever it takes. It was a little, a little bit like the ECB during the crisis. It was no holds barred. And he just started raising rates and you had a series of tightenings. And back then they used to concern themselves a great deal with the money supply. That, that was a big metric. They, if you go back and read the Fed minutes, that's what they spent the whole, whole meeting discussing that. So he kept raising rates and inflation kept going up and gold and silver kept going up. And after about a year and a half of that into the late seventies and early 1980, people changed their mind. They said, you know what? The Fed can't do anything. They're powerless. And Volcker kind of took that as a dare. And the last rate rise, I think in uh, late February of 80, I think the funds rate went from maybe 15 to 20. It was really dramatic. It got people's attention. And right after that, yeah, the hunt crisis, the market collapsed. And five weeks after that historic rate raise, they cut rates uh, 550 basis points. Wow. A little bit of a little bit of volatility there, yeah. And that was the peak in short rates, but the long bond didn't peak until like October of 1981. So you had a big runoff in terms of the bond market not really changing its tune until 18 months after the the peak in short rates and the peak in the fund rate, and really the peak in the tightness of the Fed. I think if you, if you look back to some of those periods of whether it's the kind of 81 period or yet another sort of uh, almost a, another bear market, a mini bear market in, in 83, where you had the long bond go back up and yield quite a bit and you had prevailing rate of inflation was around 4%. It, it sort of came way back down. So you had real yields that were north of 10%. Right. And that's what convinced us at the time that that was a bull market. You had to have, because the economy could not sustain those sorts of interest rates with a kind of nominal GDP it was producing. You just couldn't cover it. So, you either were going to get a tremendous series of disinflationary events, which is what happened, or a dramatic slowdown in the economy, which also took place in nominal terms. So, yeah, the rates backed up in, in uh, 84. And went back, the the long bond went back to 14 in June of 84. And people, again, threw in the towel. They said, you know what? Inflation is not over. I remember one of the other strategists on the street used the term spectacularly higher rates. I mean, rate got to 14. He was talking mid-20s to 30 on the long bond. Right. And so what are, what do people miss in that period? You know, we look back, it's easy in hindsight, but certainly when, when you consider this notion of a 10% plus real yield, especially in light of what we've experienced in the, the post-crisis era of generally negative real yields and, and even nominally negative interest rates uh, across the wide swath of Europe, what, what, what do you say about maybe the people that, I don't want to say the people that missed that incredible buying opportunity. But what does it say about sort of whether it's the framing problem that, you know, we sort of all live in the present and it's hard to see forward? What Again, is you, when you go back to the mid 80s, what was the, the, the notion around putting money to work? Where, where were people supposed to, you know, hide out in terms of uh, risk taking? Well, I think conceptually, people have a very, very difficult time choosing the single variable or the one or two variables that really matter. Because in every cycle, they're different. 
So people, you know, you could see there are a hundred different variables that you can concern yourself with, and the noise is overwhelming. So to us, it boiled down to the real yield and kind of a secular peak in the whole commodity cycle. And with that, you know, that was a very, very powerful pressure for rates to turn for a long, long time. It's sort of the obverse of 09, 08 and 09, when, you know, the Fed basically came out and said, to their credit, we're going to do everything and anything we need to stop this. People didn't believe them. I mean, 09, you know, when when you had that last backup until uh, March of 09, I mean, people were, I traveled around, I must have spoken to 100 groups in five months. People were on the verge of suicide. I mean, people who'd been in the business for 25 years. And they were convinced that this is over, over like 1929, 1930, over. And the one variable, all you had to do was think about, okay, what caused this? You you had a very, very severe liquidity contraction, which I would lay at the feet of the Fed also. They didn't recognize what was happening in the derivatives markets and with funding in general. But then when they turned, they basically, I mean, they said, everything, including the kitchen sink. Yes. And people couldn't kind of winnow down all the variables to that one because the crisis had been a liquidity crisis. Liquidity was something, I mean, there aren't that many things the Fed can guarantee. They can guarantee that they can provide the base liquidity to the system in terms of, you know, non-borrowed reserves or whatever they want them to be. And I said to people, if a trillion doesn't work, it's two. And if two doesn't work, it's four. And then they can go up to 10, 15 trillion. And people were arguing that, no, they don't have a balance sheet that can accommodate that. And I said, you forget, there's no rules. They make the money. They can do it to any degree they wanted. And that combined with the fact that you had from 09 to 10, really, you know, real yields, um, around the world has collapsed. Right. Well, yeah, you, you know, it's easy to get uh, caught up in both unbounded optimism. You know, we've seen bubble type behavior in Bitcoin and internet stocks and then unbounded pessimism too really is what occurred in, in 08. And, and it was, I don't think it was any one thing that the Fed did. They, like you said, there was a kitchen sink. There was this ABC of rescue facilities that uh, attacked every part of the market. And I think the, to, to me, the lesson is, and I certainly was overly pessimistic, right early, but overly pessimistic uh, at the end, was that you're betting against an actor that wants you to lose. Uh, and then the price of your bet is becoming increasingly less attractive. You're buying the VIX at 50, 60, 70. The margin for error is going down and down and down. You know, it's, it's very difficult to, right. to how, be right. How are you going to win? What circumstances make you a winner? And you have to exaggerate so, so far. Yeah. And, you know, when the S&P got to 660 back in, in the first quarter of 09, you had to ask yourself, okay, you're bearish. Where's it going? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're going to see a 350 S&P. Let's circle back to uh, another big risk event. Uh, so we were talking about the kind of mid '80s. I'm curious into the into the crash of '87. Any any recollections there in terms of observations on what was going on? The, the maybe the the risk cross currents and, and just the 
may call it the magnitude of the sheer panic uh, on that day? That I remember very well, but it was interesting. 87 started with a January that was as strong as this one. They they are the two strongest January performances. Interesting. That you can find, I think, in the last maybe 60 years. So that was interesting. And you know, really what happened was at that point, you had a leadership change in the market. I think that the best performing group in the market for the first nine months was steel. And I know the best performing stock in the S&P was Lukens, L-U-K, no longer exists. But so you had a big change into the kind of nuts and bolts part of the economy as leadership. And then as the, the economic figures kept getting better and better and better, and the rates kept going up and up and up, you know, the long, the uh, 10 year bottomed in uh, July of 86 with the collapse in oil prices. You know, oil went to nine bucks. That's when people finally believed that you were in a bond bull market, mm. sort of five years after the fact. And from there, rates went to 10 and a quarter right. the morning of the crash. So there was some level at which, you know, the backup in rates was going to have an effect particularly in a market that was being led by very economically sensitive stocks. You didn't know exactly what the uh, tipping point was, but a 35% backup in terms of yields, or actually from, from the starting point, it was almost 50%. That's pretty close to what's triggered it almost without any kind of failure in the last 100 sure. years. And were you managing, uh, what was the, the sort of makeup of your the sort of portfolio going into it? What were your money management responsibilities? We had a long short fund that was about, well, we, we owned notionally more S&P puts than the whole value of our long book. And we were already up 32% for the year. I see. Okay. Going into it. So we didn't lose any money. And then, I mean, we wound up at Comstock having the best performing mutual fund in the United States there because we had had a good first nine months and then we didn't really give any back in the crash. But, you know, I remember the crash quite well because um, my oldest son, Duncan, was born on the 16th. Wow. Friday. Hmm. And he was allowed to leave the hospital on Monday evening or actually Tuesday morning. So our last day, and I was sleeping there, they allowed the mm -hmm. father to come in and sleep with the mother and the baby. So our, our last night there was the night of the 19th, right after the crash. Wow. So you got me on that sure. one because uh, my daughter Selena was born on November uh, 19th, uh, 2008, which is sort of second or third all-time high in the VIX, uh, right around 80. But when they backfill the VIX to the crash, it didn't exist at the time, but on the day of the crash, the VIX was a 140 when they actually do the math. So your your S&P puts must have quite, <laughs> quite exploded in value. Yeah, it helped. And I remember clearly during that week after the crash, you know, the market bounced around and people were, were just terrified. And on the Wednesday following the crash, the future, the S&P future traded 50 points, 500 basis points below the cash. So the, the arbitrage opportunity there was unprecedented. Yes. But 
people were too busy meeting margin calls and throwing themselves out windows to to worry about it. But interestingly, you know, people say that did that wasn't a harbinger of recession. I would disagree with that. You had a tremendous amount of economic momentum. So you didn't see it statistically for a while. But that was the beginning of the collapse of the banking system, commercial real estate. You know, from from 87 onward, New York prime real estate Mm. probably went down 40 to 70 percent, you know, by 93, four after the peak and collapse in Japan. I remember quite well, you could buy um, one bedroom apartments in good neighborhoods for $40,000 cash. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people didn't want them. Right, right. Because, you know, the world was ending. Um, You've had a lot of experience and, and a lot of perspective on, on emerging markets along the way. I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of help us frame some of your, you know, what you've experienced market-wise, some of the framework that you've developed over, over time. Maybe include in that the the Asia crisis uh, of the of 97 and, and sort of, what were the ingredients to to bring that to bear? You know, what what are the lessons you take away from some of those those big events that have you know kind of global spillover implications? Well, I think specifically going back to uh, ninety seven eight, you know, the problem was, and it it was um, somewhat endemic. You had a lot of countries, a lot of EM countries, that had decided that the way to stabilize their economies was to manage their currencies. So you get a lot of inelastic exchange rates there, which when you have variable interest rates and flows uh, at they, some dangerous. point, yeah, yeah they, they can't last. And central banks just, you know, they don't have the reserves in EM to fight global flows. And you've seen that again and again and again. And so the real trigger, I remember the big collapse was in the Thai pot. Yes. There are a couple of hedge fund managers here who had sold volatility against it. So when it went down, I think it went down 70% in a flash. Mm-hmm. And of course, that triggered everything else. And Is there anything now when one of the, what do they call it, original sin, which is issuing debt in a currency not your own and sort of being at the mercy of the markets of, of flows. We're told that these uh, EM countries have learned some hard lessons that they stockpile reserves. When you sort of step back and you look at the landscape of here and now, any vulnerabilities on the EM side that you're particularly worried about? You know, I think those have come down since the worst of it was in the 15, 16 era when you had, I mean, you had in, in 14, you had the collapse really of the oil market, which is a bad thing for EM and the dollar exploded at the same time. So you had for the next year and a half dollar funding problems throughout throughout EM. So it had been tremendously popular for people to fund themselves in dollars because our rates were so much lower, the nominal rate, than almost any, well, I think than any EM country. So the temptation was enormous. So people got themselves sideways in this. And so you had a massive liquidation and real problems and Dollar funding costs skyrocketed. You've had it's kind of a mini repeat of that this year or last year. You had a Fed tightening. Nobody else really was tightening. Right. You had dollar liquidity globally starting to come in. And you had a lot of people with dollar obligations. And, you know, the swap rates were starting to show you that 
uh, dollar funding was becoming an issue. And I really think it, you know, had the Fed not kind of changed course this week, I think we have some problems ahead of us. But no, I, I think there are enough reserves now. There's a big difference from 97. We've, you know, we, we've radiated reserves into the rest of the world for the past decade and a half. So central banks around the world are in much, much better shape. And I think the Fed is more aware now of the dangers of dollar contagion in terms of tightening. They won't admit it. Mm -hmm. They can't really. It's not in their brief to right. worry about, you know, is, is Asia okay with our monetary policy? But it has to have an effect because now they're starting to cite global weakness as one of the risks to the trajectory of our economy. And, you know, I, I think Actually, I think the real risk is that there is not a lot of economic risk at this point and that they've, you know, the mistake they made after the Asian crisis was to confuse that with a real domestic economic crisis. And it wasn't. So you had a, you know, they stepped in and cut rates, which just triggered the 98, 99, 2000 bubble mm -hmm. in all kinds of, you know, U.S. growth stocks and then the eventual collapse of that. Any, any perspective on, on the tech bubble itself? It was a, a unique uh, period called a, I don't know, five or six year period where, boy, you saw elevation of PE multiples to levels that you'd never seen before. It was sort of a new paradigm. What was that period like for you? It was very interesting because there was so much pressure on money managers not to miss this. So you have people who are deep value managers going and buying, you know, CMGI or right. something like that. Right. Everybody has an excuse why the hot stock does fit into their their mandate when it gets too hot. But I think the thing that eventually brought that in was, and this is what ends all really crazy bull markets is supply. Mm-hmm. Well, bull markets don't end because the people who are chasing the asset all of a sudden wake up one morning and say, gee, what I'm doing is irresponsible. This is crazy. No, they just get more excited. The higher it goes, they get more and more excited. They want to buy more at higher prices. But what stops them is you get to a point where something is so valuable that the producers will give you as much of it as you want. Mm -hmm. So I remember walking into somebody's office in uh, late 99 around Christmas and we couldn't have a conference because the conference table was stacked with prospectuses beyond eye level. Wow. And these were referral. I mean, you name it. Mm -hmm. You know, pets.com looked like Morgan Bank compared to the other stuff that right, people right. were putting out. Um, so that was, that was pretty interesting. But in that collapse, what you had was the, you know, year three, four, and five of emerging markets getting themselves back into shape. Mm -hmm. And when the Fed finally addressed the economic effects of the technology collapse, the biggest beneficiaries were emerging markets. The beginning of market field was, did you say 2007? Yes. So you had this incredibly low vol period before that, right? It was uh, credit creation run amok, dealer risk-taking got more and more sizable, OTC derivatives expanded massively. Obviously, a significant in hindsight and maybe even in real time, obvious mispricing of housing risk or anything related to mortgages, lots of leverage. What was that period like? And then you know, maybe walk us through the formation of, of market field. 
Well, we started in, in 06 with the idea that there wasn't much macro investing going on. It, it had been very easy to just be, you know, oriented toward developing world and uh, non-U.S. growth. So we got up and running in, uh, I guess, the summer of 07. And the whole housing thing was one of the easiest ones for me in terms of spotting a really, really dangerous excess. It, it was one of those where, I mean, the the adage about bull markets end with supply just raining down on you like a thunderstorm. It was so easy to see in housing that that's what was happening. I mean, the rate at which home building was proceeding compared to household formation and population growth and everything else, plus the price times the rate. I mean, the volume required to absorb all of, to be absorbed was just colossal. And the home builders weren't going to stop until something stopped them. So what stopped them was, you know, six, seven, and eight. And that was, so we, we managed to avoid losing money or much money during the really ugly phases of it. As you form, so market field, tell us a little bit about uh, the the structure and I think it's a unique formation in, in the world of mutual funds. It's, yeah, it's, it, it distinguishes was a hedge fund. Oh, it was, it a, hedge was fund. a hedge fund format mm-hmm. that was under the 40 Act. Okay. And so, so it gave people liquidity, transparency, some limits on leverage, and you know, real pricing. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any side pockets that right. were hard to value. Right. We didn't have any four-year derivatives that were kind of marked to model, which, you know, a lot of hedge funds wound up doing that as I'm sure you're more familiar sure. than I am in, in terms of the number of people who got sideways because they had these really complex uh, mortgage derivative trades on yes, and v- just valued them where they wanted to or where they needed to. And you have a, a kind of go anywhere approach, a global approach yes. and the ability to short and yep. use options. Yeah. And that's that. unique for a mutual fund format. Well, since we came along, a lot of people have done that. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of, there's a lot of hedge funds tried to diversify into the mutual fund world. Right. The liquid of, alts yeah, uh, give idea. themselves a bigger audience. Yes, yes. Um, so you're getting started in 2006, and it's still very low volatility, but it's clear that something's up, and the wheels are, you know, in the early, early stages of starting to come off the bus. And by early 2007, walk us through that period for you. What were you? What was making its way into the portfolio? What was your sort of mix between offense and defense? How, we, how did you think about it? We had a fair amount of offense. I guess our net exposure was probably 30 or 40% at that time. But all of the defense was in basically the right stuff. It was banks and housing related and some of these mortgage companies, you know, that had just sprung up leverage mortgage players. Um, So that helped a lot more than, um, you know, just index level hedging might have been. Actually, in in the summer of 08, the best thing we did was – when oil got above 120, we shorted Russia. That was our largest short going into the um, collapse. So that really helped. You know, when oil fell out of bed along with everything else, Russia got hit very, very hard. And it was less frightening because we kind of, I didn't expect the carnage and, and the breadth of the financial destruction I mean, we knew what was going on at Bear Stearns, mm-hmm. 
And we knew what was going on pretty much everywhere else on the street in terms of people using their balance sheets at 30 or 40 to one in order to create non-volatile earnings. Right. It's great. The carry trade is a wonderful trade as long as the shortfall position is the right position. Yes. Yes. Once that reverses. So, you know, I was willing to maintain a fair amount of long exposure going into the absolute collapse. So we lost some money, you know, probably, I don't know, 15% over the fourth quarter, maybe 12% over the fourth quarter of uh, 08. But overall for the year, I think that was our total loss, about 12%. Mm-hmm. And then in 09, we got really, really long. We eliminated the short book except for a few stragglers. And so we were in 09, we were up 30 something percent. You know, I thought that was good being negative and then being willing to kind of abandon that view. And it really was just based on the fact that not only was the Fed talking the way they were talking, you could see it. All the stats reflected it. In the real economy. Well, in the financial in financial economy. markets. Yeah. If you looked at all the markets that had really, really been displaced mm-hmm. one by one, you know, government credit and then the short end and, and high grade credit, they all started to yeah. normalize slowly, but they did. And the Fed kept going. Yeah. So, I, feel, I feel like there's one, uh, every, everyone looks at, you know, call it March of 09. That's the low. It's uh, in and around the time that the Fed, they had already had QE, but they came in sort of over the top. It, it's own it sort of still part of QE1, but it's sort of QE1 plus. And I think there were a couple of things underappreciated in terms of the the, the totality of things that made it work mm-hmm. and that brought the market back to life. And one of them was um, the FDIC had a, uh, a basically an insurance program where they allowed corporates to issue under an FDIC guarantee. And what could be more powerful than that? <laughs> I, I can buy a corporate bond with a gigantic yield and the FDIC has got it. That's pretty good. And I think that one didn't get as much uh, press, but I think it was part of the part of what made it all work. It was a huge aspect of the ameliorative process. You know, you had to step back if you were really negative. You had to step back and say, okay, what happens to all of this? Yeah. Does the FDIC go broke? Some I had an argument with somebody who said the Federal Reserve could go broke. Right. They said, you know, the Federal Reserve could lose enough money so that they were technically insolvent. And I, I said, wait a minute. <laughs> where, where do you think the money comes right, from? Right, right. So yeah. there, there was a lot of, if you go back and read the contemporaneous commentary, there, there were a lot of scenarios proffered down, you know, down big scenarios that had really stretch credibility Mm -hmm. if you were familiar with, even slightly familiar with the way all those things worked. What's your view? So the post-crisis era is uh, is a lot of things, but one of it is the increasing importance of central banks in markets. They're they're more and more active across the world. It's not just the Fed, but let's let's stay with the Fed. Any I don't want to wax too philosophical here, but just any you sort of step back and you think about the exigent circumstances portion of the Fed's activity. Got, someone's got to do something. They're in a position to do it versus maybe the markets become a little coddled and the Fed starts to view itself a little bit differently. What's your thinking on on that? I've thought, and it's cost me, I've been wrong really about things since 2014. 
you know, I thought this was the twilight of central banking, that these guys had gotten too famous. They were on TV every 15 minutes, which is always, it's a bad sign <laughs> for anybody in finance. And they all basically had the same perspectives. You know, they were all educated either at MIT or Chicago or some yeah. close relation to that. They they all really understood that there was an array of models you used, and it didn't matter. It was it was across the globe, and they all got together and talked about it, and they still do. So I still think this is kind of this is set up to be sort of the twilight of central banking. My personal bias is that it ends with a sort of runaway nominal growth around the world because they're reluctant to really st step in front and do what needs to be done in an environment where things are accelerating. And there have been some things that have kept that from happening. You know, EM was very weak. I think it bottomed in 16. But again, last year it was, it was weak. We had a strong yeah. dollar. Mm -hmm. You know, China's definitely had financial problems. They are trying to address them. I think they probably are at a point where they're also going to do whatever is necessary. Where, where do you come out on the, the lessons of, of inflation and the, the despite the best efforts of central banks and really dipping their toes into some pretty extraordinary measures with negative rates and asset price uh, levitation, buying, buying things, not just government bonds, but even ETFs and corporate bonds. Are we to assume that inflation would just be that much lower had they not done something? Or does this? The, are we learning that the channel to create inflation is just not through some of these methods? I think the latter. I think if, if you look at the way in which central banks influence prices, it all goes through the asset side. That's what they do. They buy liquid assets to expand their balance sheet. They enlarge the bid for assets of all types among all types of investors. They take a tremendous amount of asset supply off the market. So assets inflate and as a direct result. And you look around. Right. You look at apartment prices. You look at financial markets. You look at art. You look at fine wines. You look, all, all the things that you would categorize as balance sheet components. So their effect on the income statement, which is what everybody measures in GDP, is derivative. It's a second or third order effect. I happen to think when they tighten, and I have written this, the first effect you're going to see is in asset prices. Mm -hmm. that, that's asset what prices happened. much more directly than the real economy. Yeah, that's what happened in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Equity prices scared them. What's your take on the negative interest rate experiment? As you sort of step back and look at what's happened in Europe specifically, maybe we'll stay there. What are what are the big conclusions? Is it something you could have surmised early or even you know later in your career? Is it useful? What what are the potential sort of second order effects? How do you look at that? I couldn't have imagined, and I think the ECB is pretty crazy, and I have for a long time. I couldn't have imagined this, but I sort of understand that they had a dual imperative was not to let the union break up, so they had to support the weak members. Secondarily, or maybe primarily, they had to support the banks, which were, I mean, if you actually mark to market, all of them are gone. 
And I think as a maybe a tertiary effect that's pretty important, they wanted the currency to remain pretty weak. So they've done that. They've forced capital out of there that can't really live with negative rates into other areas. So you've had the dollar being sort of the haven of last resort. So when when you look at the world today, post-Trump, we have uh, call, call some of the Twitter account, some of his his Twitter account unconventional will be will be kind, but he's he's implemented some policies that have goosed markets, corporate profits. Some might say you pulled a lot of stuff forward, and sort of the you know the tailwind of that is already starting to to fade. Maybe not to danger a danger point, but when you step back and you look at the world of investing today and the the sort of at the world of asset allocation. You know, simple stock bonds. And what, what should people be thinking about in terms of the kind of mix of offense and defense that should be in the portfolio? Well, I think one thing different today is the if you wanted to point to some really, really egregious overenthusiasm, it's in the private markets. You don't see it print every day, right? It's in all these multi-billion-dollar venture-funded companies that don't make fun any money; they're subsidized, but they continue. You know, the, the, these venture favorites are responsible for a tremendous amount of employment, office space absorption. That's really um, interesting. Cash flow to their employees, all of which is subsidized. So what we learned in the aftermath of the tech bubble was that, boy, this, 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 whole, uh, this whole project was a big source of employment. And we learned the same in the aftermath of the housing bubble too, right? It kept a lot of people busy. And do you see some corollary there? Is it that significant? Where, as you're saying, office space and conferences and employment and, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a big deal. I really do. But it's a part of the society that's really done very well. Yes. The other part, you know, the part that sort of lives around the um, tractor factory in Peoria, Illinois, is not doing as well, which is part of why you had such a political revolution here. If you get some slowdown in the creation or subsidization of these private unicorn companies, that'll have a big effect among sort of uh, white collar, coastal, more, shall we say, cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. folks. What's your your sort of risk antenna, so to speak? If ten is uh, it's two thousand six and seven, and I'm really starting to get concerned about something more systemic. Where where are you now, and and what in terms of the risks that you see is most prominent, and perhaps most maybe underappreciated, and maybe not priced in? What does that look like for you? I would say, in terms of the sort of new economy, the the big wealth creation machine, I'm pretty concern, maybe seven out of 10. And, you know, the key there is going to be how do the growth stocks, the technology stocks that are publicly traded fare now that they, they've had a big drawdown. They've rallied back. They've had, their earnings have been good. But if the money doesn't keep flowing to that group of maybe 15 or 20 stocks, you're going to have a very hard time with any IPOs of these private favorites. Right. And that's that's the thing to watch for. If you start seeing IPOs that are run at 
lower and lower valuations or canceled or where the concessions really are um, egregious, that's going to indicate a crack in this whole sort of new age, sky's the limit, technology and software and new app kind of economy, which in turn will it will affect space absorption in the six or seven city centers that are really the favorites, right? including the one we're sitting in right now, although we're in a non-cool part of the town. But, uh, <laughs> What's your view on corporate debt? So, it depends on who you ask or what you, how you frame it, but you know, companies have rightly taken on a lot of debt. It would be crazy not to at the levels on offer in the marketplace there uh so they they have more debt than ever yet you know on a ebitda basis they don't look too alarming the interest coverage looks good but some of that's based on very high concurrent levels of profitability any views on on that as a risk i don't really think so i don't think the corporate sector other than some that have really been aggressive about buying back stock and you know keeping the the reported eps up I don't see a general problem in the corporate sector. Some of the, at least people's concerns around the on the corporate side, and of course, you're earning slow and suddenly your ability to service that debt gets compromised. Some people argue that uh, higher rates themselves could be problematic just as a cost. Things become less affordable when interest rates go up. But as part of your process is an outlook on on rates, is that a, does that figure very prominently in sort of how you think about the valuation environment? It's a fair part of it. And this time around, it's probably, I would say the key variable here is the relative strength of the US dollar, not necessarily versus Europe and Japan, but versus the rest of the developing world. If the dollar weakens, that's going to allow the rest of the world to really pick up. And a lot of the debt and a lot of the top line concerns that people have will be alleviated. And if, you know, a weaker dollar will raise nominal growth here and inflation rates. But if you had another spike in the dollar, like 2014, I think you'd have a crisis, but it would not originate in the United States. Did Powell just given all clear in that sense? Uh, I think so. You think so? So so versus two weeks ago, the degree to which, as you look at the world of opportunity, has that changed significantly based Not on what's much. happened? We kind of expected him, despite what he had said, central bankers generally spend their time talking to people who are involved at very high levels, either of corporate management or finance, and probably more people involved in finance and similar businesses to ours. And by you know, early and mid-December, there were people were panicking. You know, things things from the apparent nominal peak in August had really, really gotten bad. And, you know, spreads were widening quite a lot. There were real concerns about earnings. I don't think there was any evidence, but you know, when the stock market is is acting that badly, people have to come up with some plausible right. rationale for what's going on. You yeah. can't, you know, you see a market that's down that much, and you know, you have a culmination basically on Christmas Eve. And I think Powell and the board were quite aware of the fact that things were getting a little 
ugly out there in the mm-hmm. world. Even though he said he was not going to pay attention to markets and that they were data driven, I, I don't buy that. I think they're driven by the input from other people who also can't forecast the future. It's and a, that's that's the problem. When they say they're data driven, well, everybody on earth is data driven if they're trying to invest or make right decisions and they're all getting the same data. Right. And none of the data or one tenth of one percent of it has any prognostic content. It's telling you what's happened. Yeah. And there are no I mean, despite the best efforts of all these smart folks who've gone to MIT and wherever else and learned how to create stochastic macroeconomic multivariable models, they don't work. They just don't work. They get fancier and fancier. They plug in more variables. They, you know, you use more partial differential equations and you still don't come up with something that is robust in terms of direction even. It's an inter- interesting counterfactual, but I, I sort of asked myself if Powell didn't say anything. So, you had this this low in the S&P around December 24th, I want to say, and if he just did not read his couple lines at that conference with Bernanke and do what he did you know, at this presser, I just wonder where, where we would be. And it's just, you know, asset prices themselves are the scorecard that is the here and now. I think we all believe in the wealth effect to some extent, right? You lose enough in your count and you're less li- less likely to spend. And I think that the scars of this sort of more self-reinforcing fall in asset prices that starts to ricochet around and people get caught out on different carry trades, I think that is rightly a worry. And I just think it was, I think he'd had enough. I, to me, it, there's nothing about the economic data that, sure, we've seen some things decelerating, but you still had PMI was still at, you know, north of 55 or so. Right. None of these are in negative territory. And then he prints a $300,000 jobs number. So, right. it's, uh, it just was a, a real asset price. You know, the sell-off was really asset, all about asset prices. It wasn't as linked to the, what was happening in the real economy. Right. I, and I think it had to do with the balance sheet shrinkage because the Fed was taking its support down for asset prices, starting obviously with the top end at government bonds. But you start allowing more and more financial assets out there that are not being gobbled up by the Federal Reserve. And you just need more and more buying power to accommodate all of them. You know, imagine what would happen if the Bank of Japan wasn't buying basically all the JGBs now. They're alleviating the pressure on someone else in the private side to do it. So, you know, the the Fed in allowing that balance sheet to run down is basically saying, okay, private sector, you're Demand for assets has got to go up proportionally if the price is going to stay the same. I think that was a bigger question than mm. what they're going to do with rates. Right, um, right. And I think as they do that, you might have a situation where the economic data is good, but asset prices of the top end of assets don't hold up. Mm-hmm. You know, the two can go in entirely sure. different directions. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's that weak economy in the 13, 14 
15 period where you had, you, you had your sort of shallow recovery, which was a great period for asset prices. A couple of those years were, were really stellar because rates were lower forever. And uh, I think that portfolio balance effect of saying, I got to do something here. I got to take my money out of cash and, and buy something. Um, you mentioned the Bank of Japan, and I know you've done things and you've had exposures to Japan over the course of time. Any any current views? Where does that? Where does Japan as a as a region make its way in, into your portfolio now? We have a fair position in Japan. I like it. I do. What the BOJ is doing is what they have to do. They're basically monetizing the old age pensions for the, con- the whole country, uh, which if they did not, they couldn't pay them. So given the fact that I'm a believer that nominal growth globally is going up from here, that's a support to my case. I, I won't say that that's the best way to do things, but you know, ultimately the, the amount, the sheer volume of Japanese um, government debt is impossible for the private sector to absorb, particularly since it doesn't yield anything. So they've more or less recognize this. So, in effect, the central bank is funding a lot of the expenditures that the government is obligated to make. And I think that's going to become more and more the norm around the world. I don't think any one place is going to stand out in doing that, which means that looking for a currency that collapses because the central bank is doing, say, you know, what the Latin American central banks were used to do all the time, and a few of them still are, which is financing the government directly. You know, that localized the pro- the problems in currencies. This time, I think it's everybody. You're going to start seeing fiscal expansion everywhere. Mm-hmm. Not, I think, you know, particularly in the ECB and in China and in Japan, I think they're going to accommodate it. I I don't see anybody really rebelling because you have this big expansion of the uh, state. And if need be, look, I, I, the ECB is not going to let Italy default. They'll go back to buying Italian debt, and, which is basically monetizing the obligations of the Italian government, which right. are not Italian government obligations from here forward are not going to go down. And their expenditures are not going to get cut in any meaningful way. So, so, so back to this uh, sort of uh, fiscal expansion, I think it may be one area of agreement between uh, Democrats and Republicans in the United States. Seems like there's yeah. a coalescing of uh, this notion of being untethered from uh, constraints. What might be the implications uh, of, of that for, for us? That, that drives nominal growth and, and activity not asset prices. So better for the economy than for asset prices. Yeah, because the government does it through transfers to individuals or sectors of the economy that spend it. Whereas the Federal Reserve does it through transfers to the balance sheet of various people who are either investing or saving. or And so one's an income statement effect, one's a balance sheet effect. Mm-hmm. If we run, uh, so what uh, looks like a maybe a 5% deficit this year. Those are probably as long as the eye can see. It doesn't seem like we're going to run anything less. So we'll do, and this is non-recession, right? So uh, probably going to jack it up for a recession, but are there implications for 
running deficits of, of of this magnitude for lengthy periods of time during during expansions? Is, is are there currency implications that uh, you think are definitive? There, there might be inflationary and monetary implications in in the form of yield curve shape and the performance of the kind of back, you know, from seven years on out. So you might see you might see a pretty dramatic steepening of the yield curve over time as the Fed kind of willfully ignores the signals of the bond market. I happen to think we've we've just now passed the the lows in longer dated yields. And if I'm correct, we ought to see in the next six to 12 months, yields starting to go back up along with the economy and the perspective starting to change. But I think running deficits on top of that is just more fuel to the fire. And, and you'd think that nominal growth, if this is additive to nominal, nominal growth, it coincides with a boost higher in inflation. And yet, if you sort of strip away, we've done some work uh, on this. If you strip away the components of things like CPI or PCE, housing's a big, big part of it. Hard to get to, you know, real happy outcomes for housing prices over the next couple of years. It doesn't doesn't seem like there's a lot of momentum. And maybe this is just uh, talking my own book of, uh, you know, North, Northeast real estate. A lot of the housing wealth is tied into the coasts yep. and they just don't seem like there's a lot of uh, upward momentum to prices there. No, I, I think I think you're going to see a big divergence. I, I think the more prosaic kind of traditional homes, the ones that are built by public home builders, will continue. They've been appreciating pretty regularly. And I think right now we've just passed the highest median home price in history. Mm. So I think that that continues. But you're right. The If we get some impairment of this asset parade and the whole venture tech, private equity, private company cycle, that's really that's going to affect the coasts and that's not really counted. You know, it's interesting what the standard inflation statistics do and do not take into account. You know, there are countries where taxes are taken into account. You know, the weightings are, they're not intentionally arbitrary, but, you know, you can look at the basket, the CPI basket, and ask yourself, is that really where we're spending money? You know, they, they don't know how to reckon healthcare costs because it's such a kind of heterogeneous world. Mm -hmm. You have insurance costs, you have private pay costs, you have subsidized costs, you have costs of Obamacare policies, you have corporate sponsored insurance, then you have the costs of actual pharmaceuticals at the retail level, at the, at the distributors level, trying to get a handle really on what number should go in there is close to impossible. But I do think just in terms of the reaction of people, you're seeing more inflation that is acknowledged by the figures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one question I would ask one of the members of the Federal Reserve Board, if they were sitting here right now, say, okay, you guys, you think inflation is inadequate. What two things would you like to see a lot more expensive in the next three years? <laughs> That's a great point. 
and they'd have no answer. Right, right. I mean, cigarettes and movie tickets, is that where it's going to be? Right. I suppose you could argue if you get close enough, and this was always the, the fear, is you get low enough, it sort of slips away from you and you can never get back up, right? It's uh, you're, you're near that lower bound and things, it's hard to recover from that. But I, I think you make a great point, which is like, what's what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and really, the only example people have of that is the depression, the big right. one. Right, right. And that was a completely different animal because the money supply went down by more than 25%. Right, right. Because all the banks were failing and with their failures, they were taking people's liquid assets. So, of course, prices collapse. You just made a lot of money disappear. So, the purchasing power collapsed. But we don't have that problem anymore. Let's finish with uh, just your your broad views, not on Democrats versus Republicans, but it's starting. It's the very, very early stages of the Democratic field, which is going to be quite thick, it seems. Uh, going to be a number of people. Do they have seven yet so uh, they can invite Snow White? <laughs> they'll have uh, several Snow Whites, I think. So uh, my question is, at what point do markets potentially start to think about Okay, Trump, uh, call him what he, you, you might have opinions on Trump, but the market reaction has been pretty forceful. The policy uh, that has been market centric has been powerful, just in terms of a corporate uh, tax cut. If that starts to turn over, if the view is that we are going to see a new party in the, in the White House, do, does that become a source of market price reaction? And if it does, when it's sort of like when do you see it starting to become part of the market narrative? I think that may be a year off. By which time, you know, the big I, I think the big area of contention and and all the rhetorical energy is being spent on the gap between normal people and really rich people. If we're correct, that's going to start closing on its own pretty dramatically. The Punitive measures aimed at really rich people are going to be unnecessary. Market forces will take care of a lot of this exaggerated wealth, I mm -hmm. believe. Not all of it, but a fair amount of it, you know, that's levered and tied into speculation and right. waterfront houses around the world. And it's easy to remark a $150 million painting down to 100. Exactly. <laughs> That could happen pretty quickly. Which is not great if you've got, you know, your collection financed by one of the banks. Right, right. That then, I mean, how do you answer a margin call in that circumstance? Mm. Well, I think they just defer the appraisal, which is, you know, an, an old trick. But, you know, people, we got to a stage in the last two years where prices of some of these things at the upper end became entirely arbitrary. You know, you'd, you'd build a building somewhere in Manhattan and you'd price the penthouse at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 million. It, it wasn't quite clear what determined that. It's probably what you needed to make the whole financing work. So that's, I think that's where you have a lot, a lot of room for correction. So we, we talked about the 87 crash, VIX got to 140. The great financial crisis, VIX got to 80. If uh, I'm giving you the hypothetical, and so I, I tell you that the VIX is at 40, and it's kind of been there for a little bit, not just one day, 
but it's gotten to that level and there's quite a bit of uncertainty. Asset prices have gapped down dramatically. What do you what what are the prime culprits from from your standpoint? Where where might that instability come from? I think part of it will be largely invisible, you know, coming from the effects of pressure on the private asset market. Okay. The other part of it would be pressure on people who have basically put their asset allocation on autopilot, which means they have a big position in the S&P somehow. And it's normally the the weighted S&P, not the unweighted S&P. And by the way, the unweighted S&P is really outperforming the weighted S&P, which is a signal of sorts right. because the, the S&P cap weighted is dominated by 25 companies. So that's what you have to worry about is that you get a feedback mechanism because those 25 companies bear the brunt of any change in allocation, which becomes, I mean, that's self-feeding. If people decide, you know, we just have too much in this kind of index fund and even moving from an S&P oriented index fund to a globally oriented index fund, if it happens in sufficient size, would that really would have a, a big effect. And, you know, the VIX would respond to that, right. even though nothing, you know, nothing really fundamental would have changed. But you'd see then companies that were dependent on stock price appreciation and all the capital markets inputs that have been so favorable for the last decade for them. Well, Michael, we're going to leave it there. I'm uh, really thankful for your time. Thank you for braving the cold and coming by. And uh, we really appreciate you being a guest on the Alpha Exchange. Thank you. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.